Uh, welcome along to the latest We Happy Few 506 podcast, hot on the heels of the one with Dexter that I randomly, uh, I can't remember what number I gave it, 1110111, because uh, it only had to be completely binary. Uh, I'm going to name this episode, episode two, for very obvious reasons. If we already have an episode two, this supersedes it completely. As our current guest, Richard Longcrane, directed episode two of Band of Brothers. Did you see what I did there? Nice Brilliant. symmetry. I like the symmetry. Thanks, mate. It only took me about 15 minutes to get there as well, didn't it? <laughs> How's your thumb? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, a cursory glance at Wikipedia, uh, and I don't trust it that much, as my friend Doug Wright rewrote my Wikipedia to say that I play field hockey for a woman's team in Holland and having gorged testicles. So I don't trust it too much. Um you began as a sculptor, is that correct? Well, sort of. I think I, I'm not sure whether I romanticised my bio or someone else did, but um, I've lied so much about my life over the years that I don't know what's real and what isn't real anymore. Uh, pretty much, I guess. I started life as a... Huh, my dad, my family, my dad's family were all theatrical. They were travelling show people, you know, they sort of uh, fit up theatre, which was travelling around the countryside with hampers full of old clothes and scenery and putting up shows on the village green and in little theatres. So he was born on the, you know, he went to 150 schools. So I was born out of that world, wanted to be an actor, but he said it's a shitty business, as indeed it probably was, and still is in many ways. Um, so I was I was going to go to, um, to become a set designer at Bristol Old Vic. And I got in, I was quite young, I was sent away to rather dreadful British public school. I'm very against private education, as you can imagine after that, because... They sweated blood to get me there, and it was a crap education. Um, anyway, so, go on. Same here. Exactly the same here. Go on. Really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, I went off to this, um, after I got my O-levels a year early or something, nine months early, went off to Bristol, but they wouldn't They wouldn't let me go. I got in, but they wouldn't let me go because I was a year too young, so they said go to art school and learn to draw. So I went to Stroud Art School, um, which ended up in Cheltenham after six, and I, I think I did two years pre dip, but I don't know why, I probably wasn't really good at drawing. Um, and then while I was there, I had one really good teacher guy called John Fernand, who sadly died this year, a fantastic artist who sort of, we became close friends. And uh, he was into what was called concrete poetry at the time, uh, which I'm, well, basically it was kind of, sculpture or paintings with with words and letters on it. it was rather pretentious except john's work wasn't but mine was so i became a member alan ginsberg was part of the group the gloop uh and a few other faces and i started making giant toys really kind of big big machines there was a lot of scrap metal around at that point after the war because of all the aircraft and the tanks and shit that was scrap so i started buying it in in, in junkyards and putting it together and making these big toys and uh, then sticking letters and numbers on it and make people said oh that's very good art rich and i thought fair enough you want to buy it that's up to you so i was i was quite successful as an art as a sculptor before i and then went up to i got into central school of art walked out of that course because i didn't get on with the guy running it very well he getting on with me um but i was already having shows in the caa the, the ica rather in the new london again I, you know i wasn't I really wasn't that good. I just liked making stuff and people seemed to like it. And I would, I suppose I wasn't very popular with my colleagues because I would take orders for my sculptures in a range of colours to suit your living room, which wasn't really what you were meant to do if you were a serious artist. 
but I was more interested in earning a buck, I think, than I was in the art world, because I found it pretty pretentious even then. There's some wonderful artists, don't get me wrong, I just wasn't one of them. So yeah, I did start life as a sculptor. Uh, in fact, I got into the Royal College of Art as a sculptor, and my old friend Patrick Uden, who's a documentary maker, um, reminded me the other day that we were all queuing up out, outside the sculpture school and the film school at the Royal College of Art were next to each other. And we were all hanging around in the morning of the first day waiting to start. And I started chatting to him and I said, what was I doing? I was doing sculpture. He said, oh, he said, I said, what are you doing? He said, film. He said, I said, is there any money in film? He said, I think so. He said, oh, I think I'll do that. And shall I? So I moved over to the film school, which you could do in those days and just queued up and went in the film school and signed on there. And so I became um, a, a film director and it's been downhill ever since really. So what point between leaving sculpture Mm -hmm. directing did you invent a series of desktop trinkets like the new boys well uh, that's a sort of parallel story um i my dad died when i was 13 and mm, bankrupt broke he was a he invented a glue called copy decks which was a famous english glue rubber glue but he didn't make any money out of it because he worked for a guy called mr grossman who i think lived up to his name as my dad remember telling me um so he never he just got ripped off he was a salesman for this glue for this company after he stopped acting there was no work about i guess after all and uh so he was um he was sort of kicking around doing stuff and i how did i i don't know really how it how it happened i just sort of uh i hadn't got any money um, and so I started with John Furnival, the teacher at art school. I started stealing enamel signs. And I don't think we took any, actually took any lead from church roofs or indeed ramsacked any churches, but we did borrow quite a few old signs off walls, uh, which no one wanted because no one recognized them in those days as being remarkable art. Uh, and we, he, but he was into it. He was very advanced in his, he was a fantastic draftsman as well and appreciated what graphic art was like. We used to take him up to London and flog him in the Portobello Road to a man called Robin Farrow, who started a shop called Dodo, who really came up with the whole concept. This is the 50s, 60s, early 60s. And so I used to make a bit of money by doing that, by, you know, stealing pub mirrors and stuff. Um, and then I started, I saw a bloke was making much more money than us who was selling stuff from a van who had, lovely mirrors beautiful mirrors out of pubs and i thought well, i wonder where he gets those from so i so i think i got him drunk one day in a pub and he said he got them in glasgow because they were demolishing glasgow in those days most of the gorbals and he would go up there with his old van and literally pick them up from abandoned pubs and then we'd he'd bring them out to london and flog them to robin who'd flog them to the, the yanks so i said to my friend patrick who we you know he's my oldest friend the, the guy the documentary maker why don't we see if we can get a turn on making some money? Because we didn't have any. We had a, I think we used to get a hundred quid a month grant, but you couldn't live off it. So I was washing dishes and in restaurants and all sorts of shit to keep body and soul together. So we went up to Scotland and started buying and stealing pub mirrors, an old sign, mainly pub mirrors, and a lot of old fairground kits. A lot of the fairground families used to live, their winter quarters were around Edinburgh and, and Musselburgh and places like that. Came back to London, um, but while we were up there, it's, it's a long story short or long story longer. Um, I we went into an old, I remember it was an old warehouse for uh, for a kind of ironmongers, and we found lots of taps, uh, tap tops, the ceramic tap tops which say um, hot and cold, and, and ones that said ring for mistress for school buttons and ring. And um, I started making cufflinks out of these things, you know, sticking on old um, buying findings as they're called from 
from the from a market in in Soho and then making and flogging them on the street. I did anything to make a buck, but you had to. And we ran out of the stuff, and I started making them and getting them made in factories in the Midlands. And then I, what did I do? How did I do? Well, I was doing all these sculptures, and that was this was running parallel, and they were really just giant toys. Oh yeah, I know what happened. In the year between when I got, I walked out. I don't think I got thrown out. I think I actually did walk out of the course at Central. Uh, and before I went to the Royal College, I went to America for a year and was bumming around there doing all sorts of dreadful things like selling blood, testing suicide tranquilizers. I was a dresser for the Rockettes in Radio City for six weeks. That was quite fun. I never seen so many. Um, beautiful older ladies in my life because I was sort of 17 and they were in their 30s but they seemed like my mum really to me at the time but they were very beautiful mums um, anyway um, while I was there I went to the Smithsonian and I saw this demonstration uh, uh, Newton's cradle it's a giant thing the balls are about I don't know six inches across but it demonstrates Newton's third law of motion which as I remember is every action has an equal and opposite reaction from the packet I remember so I came back and thought, oh, that would make a good toy. So I made a few, sold them in Carnaby Street. And then we made more. And then another old friend of mine from art school called Peter Brox and I started uh, above a rag and bone shop. We actually was our first um, office. I've got a photograph somewhere uh, in, in Kings Road, off the Kings Road. We started making them um, with a, a couple of young kids who were making them. And we made, you know, we had quite a good company. We did all, all the Carnaby Street British rubbish. There were all those Union Jack tin trays and uh, mag magnetic sculptures. Um, and then I got a job. I knew Julie Christie from a lady called Alfie Benj, who was at art school with me at the Royal. And she was a friend of, of Julie Christie's. So I met Julie and Julie introduced me to a man called John Slesinger, who was a wonderful director who made Midnight Cowboy and a few marathon man great movies and he asked me and my partner peter if we would design the sculptures and toys that murray head was meant to have designed in a film called sunday bloody sunday which was with peter finch and glenda jackson a rather i think forgotten sadly most of john's films are forgotten today they shouldn't be because he was a wonderfully talented man so i made i designed with peter these toys that Murray was meant to have made. I even got a small part in the film, which is really pretty frightening. I, I'm wearing a Viking helmet and doing a, playing Murray Head's partner, um, which is a scene with me and Glenda Jackson. If you want to um, um, laugh at an old film director, that's the best thing I could recommend because I certainly wasn't a very good actor, um, even if I wasn't a very good, um, I don't think I'm a bad director. I wasn't a particularly good sculptor. So that's how I started making all these toys really. Fantastic. So is it all right? Because I, I understand that you, you hopped cues to go and make films for more cash. But do you think I, I wrote a question? I thought it was an asinine question. Is sculpting similar to directing? And do you have to have the same vision of making something out of nothing? Like an overall vision before you start? Uh, never been asked that one before. I thought I've been asked everything in interviews. Um, I don't think I probably not because sculpting, yes, you could say that if you take a sculptor who's working in stone or in wood or maybe even in clay, or certainly stone and wood, you're, you, you're finding something which is within this lump of stone, rock, whatever material. So you're carving away till you find the thing you want. 
Um, and you could draw that parallel. Well, you can't do that parallel to filmmaking unless you're an incredibly indulgent film director, which some of them are, who turn up on set and go, what are we doing today, guys? You know, and they sort of carve away and they shoot things. They don't really know what they're doing. That They've just been given a vast load of money. And that, when they've shot everything and you know, everything that moves, they put it together and make a movie out of it. It's not how I would do it. I, well, you certainly, well, you could do that today if you're megaly successful. If you're not, the schedules have become so fast and so tight that you, it's almost the opposite. You have to know exactly what you're doing to make your days. And if you don't make your days, you're quite quickly fired as a director these days, or in fact, you always were really. It's always been a pretty rough business. So I don't think for me, I'd be asked a question, what's your vision for a movie? What's your vision? I never really have a vision. I read a script and go, yeah, that's good. There's something in there, even if the script isn't actually quite right yet and needs work but some things made me go I can do something with this I suppose you have to so I don't have a vision the vision really comes from a lot of people including me sort of yeah doing bits and through the pre-production to me is more important than anything well the script you've got to get the script right and you've got to cast it right and I always use the parallel of a pyramid because the pyramid should be the script should be the base and then should be the casting and then you pile all the skills on top of that until you get to the point which is the films being finished so many films that i see sadly today the other way up they start with a point which is the effects the music the score the mix and the actual script as an example was last night I, my wife and i watched netflix 200 million dollar offering called the gray man came out last night like before oh oh uh, yeah what's that like uh, richard hey have you, have you guys seen that at all? I'm... Yeah, I saw it last night, yeah. Ryan Gosling, I mean, yeah, sorry, he... yeah, what was I like? Crock of shit, <laughs> um, I would say. Um, not Mr. Gosling, he's a fine actor. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was just, the, I mean, 200 million, I think it's a budget. It the, There was no script. I mean, the script was completely incoherent. It was just one stunt after the other. I mean, all luck to the effects team, you know, amazing amount of debts laid in one day i think they beat the world record but did it leave you with any feeling of understanding the characters caring about it was just wallpaper you know just well-made technical wallpaper so no i i was we saw elvis this morning and i thought that was a very well-crafted film i mean remarkable performances biopic not my cup of tea really but you kind of i always feel you know where they're going and you know what's the there's nothing surprising what was surprising was how remarkable this young man was it at becoming Elvis Presley. Uh, and Hanks does one of his best performances of his life, uh, I think, probably, as um, Colonel Parker. So, but the script was pretty average, really. Um, but, it, but the acting took over. There was no great acting in The Grey Man. I mean, Gosling just takes the money and runs. Um, you know, I'd like to work with him. I shouldn't be too rude about him, but there you go. I think he's yeah, a good yeah, actor. Yeah. On Netflix as well, yeah. yeah, we, yeah we, I mean, we, we can edit yeah. that out, Rich. Don't oh, worry. yeah, don't worry about it. I've mean, <laughs> passed my sell-by date. It's not a problem. We'll just... <laughs> <laughs> so well, sorry, I got a quick question, man. You going? I like Ryan Gosling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's fantastic in Drive. Yeah, um, yes, absolutely yes. fantastic. So when Netflix end, apologies if I'm jumping again the there. Here, even <clears throat> do you find that Netflix just like says just throw money at something, an actor, and they build a script around that, which obviously. Mm -hmm. There is no yeah, script. It's I a very poor storyline. Netflix, and thanks to you guys, I probably never will now. Um, but uh, I mean, what do they do? 
I think I think the business, you know, Hollywood. I use that term as overall. Well, I suppose Hollywood's guilty, more guilty than most companies, countries. You know, I don't know that in South America, well, we don't see much that comes out of South America, but they're, they're fantastic filmmakers. You know, I've been watching Narcos. Well, that's Netflix. Remarkably good mm. script, acting, performances, brutal, but really well done. So I won't, you know, I won't knock Netflix yeah. for everything. because I think The really TV do. series are phenomenal. Yeah, fantastic. But the, but the movie was not really. It was, it was fine. You know, it was escapism. And I didn't walk out of it, but... I didn't feel any joy at the end of it. Um, what did I see? I don't know. Yeah. I, my life that I, what I've enjoyed most in my life as a director is directing actors. I kind of have done effectsy stuff. And, and the truth is, you know, once you said, I think the, that car should blow up there and they should chase him across there, there's fuck all to do for a director, really. You just sit back and watch the effects team and the DP and the assistant directors do it because you can't do it whereas when you're doing a three two three four hander in a room you better be on your metal because no one else is going to get that sorted you know you've got to be there every time a take's done your opinion's important the actors want to know what you think they want to be guided well the good ones do sometimes that's just a gentle nudge sometimes it's a major rethink but there's always something to do and i think uh you know i think there's a lot of bollocks talked about directing um, by directors largely and uh, I'm not sure that my feeling is about art. I don't like artists talking about art. If it's a painting, put it on the fucking wall and look at it. I don't want to hear about why you did it or what it's meant to be. But it's a painting. It's not designed. What well, you want to be? You want to tell me about it? Write a book. I feel the same way about music. Largely, I think it's indulgent talking about your art, and I suppose I'm guilty of that now. But I don't normally talk about it very much. I, well, you I don't, think you don't so own the moment, do you? As, as the artist, you don't own the moment. You don't own how someone feels about your painting. You don't own how someone feels about your film. No, they feel, so yeah. what's the point of you wanking on about it? Do you know what I mean? You, well, you it's, largely, it's largely because someone wants to feel... I mean, there's two things, I suppose, arguments. One is that, that if people don't know who you are, they don't, you know, if you, the reason we need movie stars is not because there aren't wonderful actors there no one's ever heard of. It's because if you don't have a movie star, the journalists won't, in, won't interview someone who they've never heard of. They want to interview a movie star so they can write an article in their newspaper about, you know, Tom Hanks's latest film. If it's, it's Joe Schmo, they probably won't interview it. And the, the, so you won't get the publicity and you can spend, you know, what does it cost now to launch a movie in America, a tiny movie? It's a, between about 10 and 20 million dollars to, to promote, to get a film out there in America. You can do it for two million dollars, but it's virtually nothing. So the budgets to and the problem with small independent movies, which I think, sadly, we won't see much of anymore. I think they'll be gone if I, if I shuffle off this mortar coil too fast. I think they'll be gone well before you guys meet your end. I think, you know, dramas will be a thing of the past in cinema. I think they'll be on television. Um, but I don't think people will, will go to the cinema to see most of the movies I've made anymore. They will just see them at home on a big screen. And it, it, you know, that world has changed. When I started making television, it was black and white, just about. I was still making stuff, not not drama. I think I did a I did a play in black and white called Oive Maria, um, about a 
Catholic girl who's converted to, to become a Jew. Uh, and that was in black and white. And that was live TV. That was pretty terrifying, I'll tell you. Um, so I don't think that, I don't think we'll see drama in cinemas. Uh, because what I'm saying, when I, when I started, you had to have a lot of close-ups. It was always said, in, you know, the reason that movies don't work on TVs because you have to have any close-ups. You had to have a close-up because the screen was only about this big. I mean, it was probably, as a young man sort of watching telly, 15, 16, it was black and white and it was like that. It was, yeah, definitely no bigger than that. Well, you can buy, what, a 60-inch TV for 400 bucks, 600 bucks now. I've got a projector upstairs, you know, with a screen. It's probably a 15-foot more 15 18 foot screen good projector good sound system probably three or four five grand's worth not much more so we watch many movies here and i don't think we lose much if it's a if it's a comedy or it's a horror movie i don't watch horror movies because i get too frightened i think you lose something with comedies i think there's something about comedy and horror that is infectious and other people in the audience around you make you laugh and you feel some emotion that spreads between animals I don't know that a drama you get much from in a cinema, really, you know, something that just is, is emotional, but not going to make you cry your eyes out. So I think those films, sadly, will be no more in the cinema. I think they'll only be on television. Um, to circle back to some of the Leighton said about how good dramas are on TV now, um, and I'm not defending, like, Netflix and, you know, and the sort of demise of, of cinemas, but do you think... Um, you think there's an element that's a, that movies just kind of seem a bit contrived now, getting all that story done in a two-hour block and there has to be a beginning, a middle and an end. And there's something kind of theatrical about movies now, whereas you can get a Netflix show of three seasons, like well, Mindhunter. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, they bled for BTK Killer into that so slowly. It was like a crime. I can't believe how slowly they, they bled him in. It was amazing. So maybe, I don't know, maybe things are just changing. Do you think it was good that they put him in slowly, or do you, did you do you think it was a bad was that a bad thing in your mind? Both, both, because yeah. I wanted I wanted to see what he was going to do. But well, they, what, one of the great malaise of I think all the TV series, most of them, not all, but most, is they do they the, the, the production companies get greedy. So what really should be you know one series they do to three, and right. there's not they're stretching the material. Um, movies, movies are very short time on screen you know i mean it, i thought elvis was too long it was two two and a half or a bit more hours and it i felt they could have taken 15 20 minutes out of it and we would benefit from it it got a bit i thought it it bogged down a bit in the middle particularly with a with a biopic where you know where it's going anyway so i wasn't learning much but um yeah i think that um that the, the problem about a movie the best movies are in real time you know if you I think probably my favourite movie still in the world is Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, uh, you know, with Burton and Taylor. Uh, just the most fantastic piece of, for everyone's point of view, the screenplay, the directing, you know, the, the acting, the music, uh, the lighting, all the great people. And that takes place virtually in real time. So it's an hour and a half long and it, it is an hour and a half on camera. There's a, there is a bit of a cheat. They go, they go off to a, a, a night diner for a drink which is a cheat, but beyond that, it's real time. And I, I think the movies that don't work historically are films like, well, films from fam- from very big books, like, I mean, it's years ago, but the, the Thomas Hardy novels that, you know, Slezinger did a Thomas, uh, Tess of the Durbervilles, I think he did Tess, or was that Polanski, I can't remember. Um, Polanski. Was Polanski. 
well, you know, they were books that were serialized, first of all, when they came out in the 19th century, but also they're big fat tomes. So you read, you know, 10, 20 pages, you put it down, you go to sleep, wake up another day, it's another day for you. So moving through a lifetime, which those books generally do, because they're sagas, seems to work well in a book. I don't think you can make those jumps easily in film. You know, when it says 10 years later, eh, very hard to buy it because you're still sitting there and nothing's happened. In, yeah. In, it's real time. But. So speaking of scripts that are complex to bring to life, um, I had a very progressive drama teacher at school who uh, who showed us Brimstone and Treacle at oh, a God, young age. Really? Um, I think he also showed us that Jean Cocktail film where everyone's wanking in the prison, but we, I don't want him to arrest him because he's still working at the school. Anyway, um, so how did you approach Dennis Potter's stuff then? Because that's pretty... It's a two-tier question. How did you approach it? And two, would he be able to get his work made today? Well, that second bit first, I guess. Um, I think he'd have some trouble. I think, you know, it's... Uh, but the world has changed, not necessarily for the better. Right. And I think we're going through a transition period with, presumably you're talking about kind of his attitude to women, presumably, are you? Or, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'm going now, boys, because I don't know. You're not I inculcated it, in this. No, no, don't worry. <laughs> uh, I think it's a tricky... I think the Me Too movement is long overdue, but yeah. I don't think it's always been handled the right way right. by men or women or by organisations. Yeah. I think absolutely women have been having a raw deal. Now, the fact that women, for, and just the fact that this is one thing, weren't paid as much for the same job. How, you know, what an amazing, arrogant concept. But, you know, perhaps the world is coming to realise, you know, that, that that these things aren't right. I mean, this is, this. I don't mean to demean the importance of the Me Too movement, but my wife just finished, written a book, published her first book at 70, called um, um, Interviews with an Ape, which is about animal cognizance. It's not about animal cognizance, it's a novel about a, an ape that can sign based on Coco, who could speak a thousand words with sign language. And it's about this, the prognosis, the story is basically the ape communicates with other animals and it, it tells a story. And, you know, we're just beginning to understand my son's that makes Alan um, um, Attenborough's documentary, one of my sons, and he's doing a, an enormous show, for, I think it's for Netflix, multi-million pound documentary about animals, not so much cognizance, but about how they look, how they have run families, how they look after each other, how they communicate, how they have senses. Um, so I'm, it's sort of around in the ether at the moment. And I think as a race, hopefully we're waking up to the fact that the animal, you know, we're just animals really, we're just, we've happened to have done quite well on the planet, but we are still animals. Um, anyway, so I don't, what was the question? We're talking about, um, about was it, i forgot what you asked me dennis potter he, it was about potter, potter yeah well done yeah. thank god for a young brain um it, dennis was a pretty tricky piece of work so i understand um, yeah yeah he what did i do i did brimstone treacle i did um uh one on the isle of Wight. what the fuck was that called with tom conti and donald pleasance and denim elliott and all sorts of people and um, that was another potter I think I did two or three of his things. Um, he was quite lazy, actually. He used to say, I, I would, I'd go through a script and I'd say, Dennis, this scene doesn't really work. He said, no. I, he said, why don't you fix it? So I did quite a lot of rewriting on Potter's stuff. 
Um, he, he was very clever, I don't want to take it away. He just wasn't, he didn't like people very much. Um, he was pretty, pretty mean-spirited. Um, and I don't think without Ken Trod, who was his amazing producer, Trod did everything he did, basically. And Trod, Trod's mad as a March Hare, but I'm a nice and man I like, and was very good to me, who produced Brimstone Treacle. I don't think without without him, either, Potter's work would have got to the fall like it did. Um, but Brimstone Treacle, yeah, I just, um, it was, um, it was, I, I, I sound arrogant to say ahead of its time, uh, it was not really liked at the time or recognised. I think it's become a bit more in interested in it now. I thought it had some some quite good merits, um, but you know the, I mean it was a the premise is would you get you asked about the premise? I mean the premise of that was based on a medieval mummers play, which is what they used to do. I believe I'm not an expert in this at all, but they were mummer plays were were kind of morality plays that were put on in cathedral courtyards in the whatever century you want to choose, I guess, a long time ago. And so it was based on, the, I think, one of those. And I guess if you don't know the story, you've got a, you've got a young girl who, who, who father writes uh, obituaries, well, not obituaries, those cards that you have for condolence cards or whatever they're called. There's another name for them, I can't remember what it is. And she, one day she finds him having sex with his secretary runs out shocked into the street gets hit by a truck and becomes a vegetable catatonic you know she's moving she's epileptic if you like or she was in the film we did but she can't get out of bed and she can't do anything and sting as a really as a kind of fallen angel comes into the life of these two this this couple and torments the father and flirts with the mother and eventually ends up raping the daughter. Well, he has sex with her. She's unable to prevent him. She can't say yes or no. Now, this is where it gets very tricky, and I'm not, I have no idea what, what, what is correct, but they're probably not doing what he did isn't correct. But by having sex with her, she comes back to life and remembers where she was and who she is. So the mama's morality play was, was, was he an angel or was he the devil? You know, did he save her from what she was going to be? I mean, I don't have an answer to it, but Dennis was asking some pretty tough questions. Uh, so I don't know whether you could ask that question today in a piece of drama, because um, I think it would create too many, um, I'm not sure any production company will want to sign their checks for it, let's put it that way. I can imagine the pitch meeting for it now. Yeah, it would be. Quite oh, I've got this, uh, this uh, girl who's in a coma, and the devil rapes her, and the uh, <laughs> out of great be, evil comes great be a good. Very short meeting. Yeah. To, to, oh, the door. I'll get. I'll, I'll leave. Yeah, I'll yeah, I'll go. <laughs> uh, I think you handled that question very well, Richard. Did I? Uh, I it wasn't meant out. to be an ambush. I was genuinely interested. No, don't worry. I, I, you can't. It's, well, you can ambush me. I don't really mind. You know. Um, all right. So. Uh, then the next topic I wanted to talk to you about was directing Shakespeare on film, which is another yeah. thing that can go either way. Because I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not speaking for Shakespeare, but it's, a, I mean, it's a visual text, isn't it? You know, they when well, they tend to speak in pictures, Shakespearean. Yeah, yeah. Hard to bring it to life on a on a on a small screen, really. You're still shrinking it down, even though it's a film. Well, I suppose it's bigger than when Shakespeare wrote it, because, I mean, you, you know, what we did in Richard III was, you know, the canvas was bigger than Shakespeare could offer in the globe. Um, 
I mean, I was, I said to you about had a shitty education. Well, I did. It wasn't a good education. I came away from, from my public school thinking Shakespeare was not for me, was, you know, all those people, intellectuals. And I, I was the loser because the guy was a genius. And it was only really, it was only thanks to McKellen, Ian, that I realised that I was the idiot and not Shakespeare. Um, I was, I think people are frightened of Shakespeare because it is, you know, it was written a long time ago and the language is complex and the plots are difficult. And so people don't want to admit they don't understand what's going on. And so when Ian asked me, he's, I think my agent must have rung me up and said, Ian McKellen wants you to look at that a script for Richard III and I said oh all right I'm not sure I'm very interested I, li- I liked Ian I didn't know he no, I knew he was obviously but I hadn't, hadn't followed his career he hadn't done much film at all and uh, the script arrived and I read it and it was very pros arch still it was very theatrical Ian had cut it down as a film script because he had done, already done uh, the stage production, which was set in the 1930s, so I'm not—I wasn't responsible for that moment of genius that they that they were in terms of create, setting it in the 30s in a Nazi fascist era. Yeah, I saw um, it when I was a kid. You did you what the movie? I did, uh, no, the or stage the production. The yeah. production. Yeah, I never. Yeah. I refused to see it because I didn't want to be influenced by it. Well, in fact, I did, I did see it, and it's not that it was bad, but I saw it about a week before we were going to start shooting. And this is a mark of how, what a remarkable man McKellen is. I mean, we had a, it's a, a to make the movie was a, a battle of years, several years, and we lost all the money, and then we lost the actors, and it was amazing we got it made. We went bankrupt, the completion bond came in after three weeks, I had to put my, everyone put their fees in, we bought the completion bond off of the insurance company that clo- normally closed the movie down. It was a saga. I'm very proud of the movie, and I'm proud of all the people who, who worked on it, but... Um, what was I saying? I've forgotten now. Fuck. The mark of the man. The mark of the man. Yeah, you're the mark of the man. Well, so I read the script and I and it's not my cup of tea as a film script, but there's a wonderful idea which is the horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse, which is a jeep with a with the wheel spinning. He's trying to get away, but he can't because if he had a horse, he would get away. I thought that was a really clever twist because a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. Yeah, it makes sense because a horse could gallop over all that fire and debris and get away. So I thought, well, maybe I should meet him and have a chat. So we met and he was just lovely and, and is lovely and said, well, what do you want to do with it? And we we just sat down and I, cut, I came up, I wrote the script in terms of the imagery and Ian cut the text down. I mean, I'm sure we rock and rolled. And I said, I would say to Ian, I remember several times saying, Ian, because I knew nothing about Shakespeare. I don't think I'd ever seen a Shakespeare play, maybe at school we put it on or something or I'd see, but not very enough, really nothing. I'd never been to um, to see a proper state, a really good stage production. And I remember saying to Ian, well, at least on one occasion, Ian, what does this sentence mean? I don't understand it and I can't direct it unless I know what she's saying. And he looked at me and I remember once saying, do you know, dear boy, I'm not entirely sure what it does mean myself. And he must have, done, well, he looked it up and he, you know, and he worked out what it meant. So we, we always, he knew his Shakespeare better than anybody. I think an awful lot of people don't know what it means, but they don't like to say it because in the, the fraternity, I think of theatre goers, you're not meant to say, I have no idea what's going on. It makes you look an idiot. I think we all, I mean, it went on, Ian is still, I consider a close friend, and we went on to make this amazing app 
which costs Ian a lot of money and all of us quite a lot of time and money, called uh, Of the Tempest, which I would recommend just if you, uh, it's about eight quid or maybe less, four quid. It, we basically took The Tempest. We were going to do all, we wanted to, I wanted to launch with all five of the big plays that, that, that were done by, are done in universities, but we couldn't afford it. Um, and so we just did The Tempest. And what the, the premise was that we wanted everyone to, to understand Shakespeare like I did. I didn't understand it, I wanted to know. So what we realised, and it was my old colleague Patrick Uden again, who came up with this idea, I think it was Patrick, pretty sure it was, that if, you're, if I'm talking to you now and I'm looking at you and you're watching my lips move, it's much easier to understand what I'm saying than if I turn away and talk to you like this. You, you, there's something about the communication of a face. So what we did was we got great actors, you know, all sorts of famous actors, put them in front of two or two high def cameras. So four or five of them in a row, and then we cut them out afterwards. So they're all looking at camera for the whole text of the app, the scrolling, the text scrolls underneath. So you can stop it and start it. There are notes everywhere. So if you want to see what that's, that's about the interpretation of it, you can like cliff notes in America, I think they're called. Um, and so again, the app won prizes all over the world, never sold really, because unless you were studying the Tempest, you didn't need it, but it is a, a great achievement. And it, it was thanks to Ian again that we got that going. Um, so I think that McKellen uh, is, and he, his performance, oh, I was gonna tell you, yeah, this is a mark of how amazing the man was. I saw the, the for some reason I decided to see a recording of the play was off. I never saw it yet. So I saw it and this is, this wasn't entirely fair on the director and, and, and Ian, but it was a locked off camera of the whole stage. Nothing, no, no, no photography, good photography involved, just a locked off camera. And Ian's performance was highly theatrical, but it was from the theater based. And I, after I'd seen it, I said, Ian, I don't think I should be doing this film with you because if that's how you want to play Richard III, I'm not the right director. This is a week or 10 days or two before we start to shoot. And rather than saying, well, fuck off, you arrogant prick, he said, all right, well, so what do you think we should do, Richard? And I told him and he said, all right, I'll try that. And he did, and he was amazing, amazing. So to, you know, to be that, for me to be that, cocky and arrogant is one thing for him to be that humble and open-minded is another and the fact he didn't get an oscar nomination for it is well it's a, it's just hollywood the, yeah. the film was made by mgm okay they loved it john Kelly, who was one of the great powerful producers in hollywood's dead now um, was running mgm at the time and they had two movies that year one was um uh, what's not i mean leaving las vegas Think yeah. I could do about the alcoholic. Yeah. Uh, they had that film up and they had Richard III. Now, what are they going to push? Shakespeare or a film that's got some commercial base to it? So they, they, weren't, they wouldn't split the vote. Understandably, why would you, would you spend? Because you don't, no one should believe that Oscars get won by being good films. They have to be good movies largely, but without Harvey Weinstein, those films would not have won the Oscars that they did. I mean, Harvey was a monster. I worked with Harvey on three projects. We never made any of them, but I spent a lot, quite a lot of time with him. And he was, probably still is, a monster. Um, and uh, but he, but he was a genius at getting films before the public. So it is a marketing exercise. And so, you know, MGM said, no, no, we, we've got to, we've got it. We want to get an Oscar. We think our, we're better to bet on 
leaving Las Vegas. So McKellen never even got a nomination, which I, to this day, feel very resentful about. I have a, a friend, an actor you might know, a guy called Phil Winchester, <clears throat> who was in a play with Ian McKellen. And it was a play in which Ian McKellen had to be on stage naked. Uh, Winchester tells the story far better than I do, but he's like, uh, the director up in the gods had, had lit it very dimly so that Ian could stalk the stage naked. But apparently Ian is extremely well endowed and hmm. wanted it to be lit very lightly. Doesn't like getting his old chap out. Yeah, it, well, good. So you corroborate my story here. So he's he's shouting up into the gods, I need more light. And the director's saying, no, no, it looks really good like this. And he said, I need more light. No, it looks good like this. And he says, I'm on stage. It's me. It's my fucking dick. And I want it lit. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he would. No, so, I now love Ian McKellen. Yeah. Sir Ian McKellen, I beg your pardon. No, no, he doesn't. He, like, he likes to call Ian. Um, yeah, he's a remarkable man. I think one of the, I haven't been there since COVID. Or I haven't seen him since COVID, I don't think. But he, he is a part owner of a, of a pub, which he saved about 100 yards along from him. On the, he lives on the river on the Thames. It's a pub that was, it was a local community where all the locals went and it went bankrupt. And Ian stepped in and saved it. And for years, I don't know if he still does it, he would, every fortnight, he would, they would do um, quiz night and Ian would host quiz night. Oh, fucking hell. And one of the, uh, talk about, and it, uh, you know, he, he loves to be heckled. He's very quick repartee, wonderfully sharp. I, 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 I must have done about, I did four or five of them, I think, in the time he was doing it. But um, he's someone I'm extremely fond of and would love to, you know, do another movie with. Um, but um, who knows? But there you go. Um. You mentioned before about things just fall into pieces. We had uh, we had Dexter Fletcher on before, who's now he's fallen into directing. He's sort of slightly confused with his own success, but he's he's great. He was he was he was an, what I didn't realize was as an actor is just how precarious everything is, and it can fall apart in a second. Yeah, we're not allowed. We're not allowed to tell the actor they have to. Yeah. Be how do you That's work under such anxiety? Which will be will be with you in ten minutes. You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, it is it, precarious. I mean, you could certainly precarious as a job. I've been fired twice in my life and it wasn't fun. Um, both times, were they unjust? Yeah, I think they probably were unjust. Yeah, um, on big, 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 enormous films. Uh, it, it's politics, but I'm, I was remembering to say, one of the things I found out many years ago, it's probably still true, but the figures won't, the maths won't be the same. It basically costs twi twice as much to insure a production designer in Hollywood than it does to insure a director on a movie because they reckon it takes on average two weeks to replace a production designer and one week to replace a director. So the production designer actually costs the insurance company more money. Uh, you know, it, it's just, it's very, and I tell when I talk to kids or I talk to you know, people, young people who are directing. I said, look, never remember, everyone is replaceable, particularly the director. It's not, you know, uh, it costs them some money, but it doesn't cost, they can't replace, you know, the movie star. They just mathematically, unless they've said something that that is not popular amongst the, uh, you know, the, the few actors who've been replaced, but at enormous cost. But generally, um, directing is a precarious job. It's a wonderful job. Don't let anyone tell you it isn't. I mean, I've had the most happiest times. I think it's a bit like childbirth. You don't remember the pain, I'm told. I haven't personally had any babies, but my wife <laughs> So um, I, I apologise to a host of communities for that comment. Yes, go on. <laughs> um, I don't think that um, you 
you remember the, the pain really of, of, of when a film for the bad even the good bits has been painful moments and when they go wrong you know it's it's it is very painful really unpleasant but i've had great times so one project that was just never going to fall through money wasn't going to fall out of it and was always going to get made was of course band of brothers and Leighton, my co-host in the top left hand corner is frothing at the mouth for the last 42 minutes to ask you about band of brothers take it away Leighton. as um a fellow charlton onion i live in Cheltenham, obviously where you were born richard um so i mean first of all ask question there do you have any connections back here in cheltenham uh, do I have any connections to Cheltenham? Well, I was born there. Obviously that one, yeah. That one. Um, I went to art school there. Um, I mean, do you still come back or no, any family? No, they're all, my mum's dead. I have, my sister lives in Dorking. I haven't got any other family. Uh, I've been back, uh, I've been back, I've been back obviously over the years because I've moved, I've, I've left when I was 17 or 16. Um, but I don't go back on a regular basis. Um, I've been back, uh, you know, I've, I've brought up in a village called Stonehouse, which is just near Stroud. Yep. Stonehouse, I think at the time I lived, it was voted the ugliest village in the Cotswolds and not quite, quite a fair comment at the time, I think. It's not a beautiful place. Um, but yeah, no, I, um, I, no, I like Cheltenham. I, mean, I, I remember it when it had the Kadena Tea Rooms in the, whatever it's called, um, next to Cavendish House and with a, with a female orchestra. It had female, well, I think it was an eight-piece band, eight-piece string quartet, no, that's only four, isn't it? Whatever. Probably was a bit bigger than four. And um, playing in that when you went and had a cup of tea and there were all palms everywhere. It was some pretty, it was ladies, largely ladies who lunch, I think, in, in those days. It was not a, um, it was not a, the town that it is today, which is pretty, yeah. Yeah. It's full of history, though. That's <laughs> the most English thing I've ever heard. What? What? The ugliest village in the Cotswolds. Yeah, it is. What a put down that is. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, jumping on to band then. I mean, we could try chat about Chantham all day. I mean, it, it's full of it's rich, rich of history. Um, I'm trying to word this right. Band of Brothers, the opening scene. I've seen the aircraft, you know, flying across to Normandy. What was your direction? In it's pretty hard to convey that in any sort form of movies i think combat can be very difficult unless you've actually been in it yourself and a scene like that that's probably never been recorded everywhere i don't anyway i don't know i've never seen anything you know inside a fuselage of a c-47 under intense fire like that how did you or what research did you do to make that so effective showing all that carnage chaos and death to have such an impact that it did well i suppose um when was um what was the the, the two famous vietnam films the deer hunter apocalypse now mm -hmm. apocalypse now was well before obviously well before um, band of brothers and it was a film that i was very affected by at the time and i thought i had been a very lucky generation my generation hasn't had to go to war i was born in 46 so you know, so far touch wood done pretty well and, they probably won't ask me to go and fight anymore. But um, so Apocalypse Now, for me, as someone who's never been at war, but obviously thinks they can imagine it, represented the chaos, the insanity of warfare, the fact that 
no one knows what the fuck's going on and they're doing this and people are trying to make a bit of buck on the side and you know they're trying to you've got people who are psychopaths and torturers and people who are dedicated to saving other people acts of bravery acts of treachery everything i mean it's just a canvas of anything you can imagine and i thought apocalypse now presented that in a way that i could understand or visually um in a very slightly surreal way so i i guess going into band of brothers i felt it should be chaotic and it should everything should feel that everyone is shitting themselves i imagine um we had a lot of i mean you've got to remember with band of i was band of brothers was tony or hanks and spielberg you know what how much their involvement in it one will i will never know tony toe who was really uh, uh, was the on on-site producer really and with very the car oh, the casting had all been done i didn't cast a single person in the show which is very that's why i didn't want to do it i turned band of brothers down initially i said to my agent, i don't want to do episodic television and she said we'll meet them at least and i did and i thought toe was really sharp and i was flattered and uh so i so i said yeah and i'm very glad i did because i learned an enormous amount and met some fantastic people who've become friends and have become great actors um, but I, I think that, um, well, we, so, so the, the quality we got, remember this is, CGI was around, but it wasn't established like it is today. Um, but the, the effects team were remarkable and they had got, as you, I'm sure you know this, they'd got a, what C, what is it, C? What's 40, the number? C47, aren't they? C47. They got one, chopped the wings off and put it on an enormous hydraulic rig. So I actually sat there and controlled the aircraft with a couple of joysticks. So we had uh, two, one or two cameramen inside who were on harnesses, handheld, with the with the cable running along the top, which was used the guys used as a jump wire to pull the chute. Uh, I think we used that as a clip wire for the so the cameraman because literally the plane would go at any angle. I mean, it would go about that steep, but you could suddenly make it do that. And everyone would be thrown. You'd be quite careful because you'd hurt people. So they didn't have to act. Acting, you know, in the old days of acting on a ship, just by rocking backwards and forwards, you know, which the actors used to have to do in cheap B-movers in Ealing Studios in the 60s. So they didn't have to do any of that. It was really flying about. And I suppose my... We had, you know, we had... Um, Dale Dye, who was there with his lads, his other, who was a military consultant. Now, uh, I don't know if Dale had actually been in any warfare, but he certainly knew about it. So there was a lot of people there to advise. Um, and uh, I just, the main thing I think that I, I, I as no other, I think I'm the only director. I decided I was earning good money making commercials at the time. Um, so I decided the, the deal was three weeks prep, three weeks shoot or whatever it was, and three, and I think three weeks edit. I think you got three weeks edit. So I said, mm, I think I'd rather, I was first in the barrel, I think we were the first people to shoot. Um, maybe along with the, the first episode, I think we were red and blue unit, I think they were called, but I think I shot the first day, I can't remember, very early on. So it was all a bit experimental. I mean, Spielberg had said, for example, I want it all to be like Private Ryan, which was a de facto kind of, yeah, very well done it was. But he said, I don't want ever, the camera to ever be any higher than a human being can be. 
Well, I didn't agree with him. He didn't, he wasn't very pleased with it. But in the end, everyone, we use cranes in the end. Just depended how you used them. Yes, what, what he was saying was extremely pertinent, which is I want you to be involved with the actors, you know, in there and get the feeling, a visceral feeling. Yeah, but that depends how you do it. You can have a high shot because in certain situations you couldn't tell the story properly. You'd have limited the perception of the audience of what was going on. So um, we um, we did we did break the rules, but I paid for. I think I was on it for six weeks, twelve weeks before starting, learning about it. I went with my wife. We drove to Normandy and spent ten days driving around all the the, the sites. We went to Braycourt Manor. I went and saw the fa the family that were there. We tried to find. I told you the story before. I tell it again because it's people are like bandits relevant. No one knew where the guns really were where they'd been placed. They had an idea where they were, but of course, in whatever number of years it had been, the trees had grown and the fields had changed. So um, we didn't really know. And I was kind of very keen to make this authentic because people did die, <laughs> an awful lot of people, and their memories and the ones who survived, I felt we had to be as honourable and as honest as we could and truthful. So anyway, I was trying to do some research at home about where these guns were. And it was late one night. The internet was, you know, running around in those days, um, not as as it is today. And I, I thought, I wonder if uh, a satellite would help pictures. And so I looked on the internet. I found a satellite company. I think it's the one that's still going today. That that we that comes up every now and then from in the Ukraine war, sadly. And I I rang up, and it was probably about was was it early? It was either very early in the morning or late at night, American time. I don't remember really. But it was certainly when no one else, anyway, the guy picked up the phone, the bloke who owns the satellite, it's his company. And by chance, he's a big Second World War fan. And he says, well, I told him the story. I was trying to find out where these were. He said, let me switch the bird on for you. So he switched the bird on, as he called it. And he moved it around until it was looking at the part of the world we wanted. And he said, yeah, there, there they are. I can see, he turned on the infrared, which is used now for quite, so he could see the marks of the trenches through the earth uh, in the soil where they were dug out and so we knew what the configuration was like we obviously didn't film there but it meant we could lay them out because no one could really remember exactly how they were so um it was uh, it was quite experience so i worked on it a lot and i edited i was on it for three months editing uh, and hanks and spielberg were, were, were generous with their times very generous um, oh, i guess amazing had you had much experience directing sort of full-on action before? Because to my mind, I know I'm not in that episode because I'm lost, that's the best action in the show. Is it? I don't, Manor, I'm is not sure fantastic. that's not overly generous. I'm it, not sure I believe... I, well, I'm not sure I agree with you. Well, I think it's okay, but I don't know that it's... it's yeah, because it's got I, that thing that you were talking about. It's, it's very claustrophobic. I think that's it's probably very badly directed. <laughs> It's just running wild, probably. I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe. Well, I'm very pleased and flattered, and people have been kind of it about it over the years. So I, uh, there must be something right about it. But because um... a lot of the other action it is very kind of sweet. The attack on Cowan Town's also really, really good, but some of it's a little yeah. bit too wide and sweeping for you to get. You can breathe when you're watching it. Yeah, I yeah. don't think you can breathe when you're watching the Breakfast uh, Manor stuff. It's so panicked and crazy and like. Go That's to, an excellent point. Yeah, I agree. That's, go you're there. You're there with winters in the trench. Yeah. yeah. You're in the aircraft, like we said. You're, you're, you're right in there. You're, you're there in the aircraft. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. So what you did was 
phenomenal. I think had, we had three. We had three ca camera styles really. So when it was just ordinary narrative, it would be it might be on a dolly. You know, Steadicam was around. We were using Steadicam, but probably weren't using it that much for this. So it would be steady academic. I don't think you should see. I hate it when you see photography. I hate it when you, I'm, I'm criticised quite a lot, I have been over my life, of, you know, you don't see any direct, you don't see Richard Longcrane's directing, what's he doing? I don't want people to see my directing. In most of my movies, I should be invisible. You should just be watching the film. At the end of it, when you come out of a movie I've directed, I'd be nice to if someone went, well, actually, yeah, yeah, it was really well directed, but I didn't realise it was. You shouldn't see photography. You shouldn't see camera moves. You know, in, in, in what was the famous film, uh, Touch of Evil, um, Touch of Evil, um, the opening and closing of that movie is amazing, because that, that shot at the beginning, that craning shot at the beginning of Touch of Evil, um, Orson Welles' film. Uh, it's fine to be pretentious, well, to be, you're aware there's a camera, nothing else could do it, because it's, the, it's like the audience, it's like the orchestra warming up in a West End show. You're not in the show yet. You're getting, you're getting in. But once you get into it, then I think the camera work should be invisible. Um, in fact, I think another example of that is uh, a much maligned film, actually. Um, the, what's it called? The Attack on Pearl. It's called Pearl Harbor, uh, which died a death of the film, which actually I thought was really well made. They made, for me, one enormous mistake, which was because they built those ships, you know, for real. They really blew them up with hundreds of stuntmen they built fake ships in the tanks out in uh, hawaii i think um but there's one point where you're in a bomber b-52 whatever they were using for not b-52 and the bomb doors open and a bomb's come out and you go down with a bomb you are a bomb and you're going well you even if you're not a filmmaker you kind of know that that can't happen you can't do that because you'd never get the film back and i think that was a mistake i think you have to be really careful with CGI that you keep it in the, unless you're doing maybe the Marvel franchise where you, you're out of this planet and you are, then it, it doesn't matter. But I remember I never got to direct a Bond. I went for, <laughs> went for several interviews, but they never gave me the job. And I remember saying to Barbara Broccoli, who I'm a big fan of, Barbara, whatever you do, don't stop using real effects and real stunts. And they very wisely ignored everything I said and did, didn't did use uh, and of course the films did well but i i think that people went to see the bond films largely because they knew it was real that when that car did do a flip or triple somersault it really did do it and someone actually had to work out how to do it so i think um it's quite important that one controls uh the filmmaking process how you, the camera work and on band we had we tracked around with a camera when we were doing ordinary conversations. And then when something got tense, um, we would do what we call steady bag. So the camera would be on a, on a sandbag. The guy would be holding it, but he'd be trying to hold it as steady as they possibly could. So, but even if you do that, it breathes. The, 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 the camera breathes. It, 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 I'm doing it a bit over. It will do that in some degree. The audience won't know it, but they'll sense a tension in how the film feels. And then when the, when shit hit the fan, it was all handheld, and you know they were running with the camera, and that produced the. We use narrow shutters quite a lot, which is where you close the shutter angle down. 
film works by each frame being blurred. So it's called persistence of vision. I don't tell you how to suck eggs, but basically 24 on cinema, 24 frames a second with a shutter in the middle. And that produces the feeling of movement. But each image is slightly blurred, which allows you to move from one frame to another in your brain without, without, without it being staccato. If you narrow the shutter down, you basically use a faster exposure like you would on a stills camera. If you use a thousandth of a second, someone's running, they're sharp. If you use a fiftieth of a second, they'll be blurry. Some of them will be sharp, but their legs will be blurry. So by sharpening the shutter, it meant that explosions produced this kind of fragmented look. Spielberg did it a lot in Private Ryan on the beaches. So all the explosions are all very staccato. And so we used a lot of techniques like that to increase the the tension and uh, and you pre you pre-planned using those techniques beforehand yeah 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 you have to, you have to you can't really make it up as you go along i spent a lot of time trying to persuade mary richards who was a line producer to let me have a railway line because the railway track the two things i got i had to fight for one was the railway track because i i said look it's all going to look the fucking same it'll all be hedgerows we've got to give the audience something to pin onto and there was a railway line that we were where we were shooting but the railway track lines had gone so i persuaded them to pay for putting railway tracks back which was a lot of money but i think it really helped to give that when they're walking along you had a sense of of landscape and somewhere and also the other thing probably more important was i guess i did quite a lot of research i kind of forgotten one of the things I've noticed when I looked at so much footage of, of the battles around there was not the dead bodies, but the dead animals. And no one, in, not no one, mainly in movies, you don't see dead animals. And I kind of believe that, the, that sadly audiences have got blasé over the years with seeing bodies lying in fields. and But, but seeing a, a cow with its head blown off and its guts spilled out on the road was shocking because people didn't like that. So I, again, had to bully dear old Mary Richards, or young Mary Richards, I should say, um, into giving me the money to make fake, we didn't use real carcasses, we used fake rubber cows that were very well made by the effects team, but they cost, you know, 20 grand each or something to make. So I had half a dozen of those, and I think they added a sense of a, brit a brittleness to the story. But again, I don't think an audience would ever know. They, they're not meant to go, oh, look at that, he's used animals. But I think it added to the, the overall feel of the thing. You, you're going to find this amusing, I think, Richard, is um, I do, uh, every so often go on, go on tour in, in Normandy, and, and the Norman guides, they love episode two, they love the break all manner of stuff. But the one thing they're miffed about is that you didn't use Norman cows. The, the cows were designed wrong. They were Frisians, weren't they? We should yeah. have used. We should have used. What do they use them there? Not Frisians. Fuck. We did black and white cast. You're quite right. <laughs> and Mary got them cheap. She, they're already. <laughs> the Norman cows are twice as much, so uh, no one will notice. Actually, no, we wouldn't have those. What are they called? They're the brown ones, aren't they? Yes, they are. Yeah, I don't know what they're called. He just called them Norman cows. Now there's another name for it. Oh, oh dear, you're right. Oh well. There you go. I knew I got a lot wrong, but that's something else. Yeah. But you're right about the um the the great advice about the bond not using uh, using real action. Uh, I showed my son 
Oh, I showed my son. I watched the Italian job with my son recently, 16. That's pretty He's now his favorite film. That's pretty. You just young. can't believe all the stunts they did. He's just, I can't believe they did that. It's so cool. It is. It is. I mean, they're still very clever today, but the trouble is you don't like this thing if you watch The Grey Man and, you, you know, it's if you want to have some wallpaper. I mean, it's wall-to-wall effects and stunts and cars and extremely clever work, you know, as you know, being from the film on film sets, that stuff doesn't happen lightly. It takes enormous planning and stuff. But write a decent fucking script, for God's sake, with a bit of a story that's... You know, it's like the Bonds. I mean, you know, I'm not going to get asked to direct a Bond again. Why don't they write a decent script for a Bond? And I don't care. She's a very clever lady. What's that wonderful lady they got into ostensibly on the last Bond to do the dialogue? Uh-huh. Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Well, I don't know what she did, but it didn't fucking show in the movie, I didn't think. You know, there was not a one iota of... Uh, no... St- the same ending. They've had the same... Well, you know, the, the wicked guy in, uh, with the big island in the sea with a roof that opens up. and that, I'm just so fed up with it, and I think it's really appalling that audiences don't go... I mean, I screwed up with that with with my film with Harrison Ford, which you know wasn't a bad movie, but it was the same gag. People, it was called Firewall, and it's quite you know Paul Bettany and Harrison. It's not a bad film, but audiences were fed up with seeing Harrison rescue his bloody family again for the eighty fourth time, right. and we yeah we needed a a, a a better story, and that wasn't to be for all sorts of reasons which I won't go into. And I think the same about the Bond. You know, I, I think Barbara Brock is a really good filmmaker and a lovely producer, and and fantastic and good strength to them. But I really, you know, write a decent story instead of using rehashing the same rubbish. Crock of shit. Uh, <laughs> the long crane crock, crock of shit. Two thumbs down. Last night was a crock of shit. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Rich. Well, we've had you for about an hour, and I don't want to keep you too much longer. I. Does anyone have another question? I have one question. I have one question. Um, uh, Diane, you go first. I have a question about the hair. (laughs) Um, About the scene when uh, Winters is jumping off the plane. And I was wondering, as a director, how is it hard to work, uh, to shoot a scene that involves a lot of CGI, such as this scene? Um, well, it's hard. It is hard, um, and it happens more and more today. And, it's ha- and with today, they don't even use, you know, with with lidar and the, and the techniques that are being used today, you don't even use blue screen. I think it's harder for the actors because, you know, when I started in the film business, I can remember a scene. I don't know what movie it was. An actor opened the drawer of a desk in his in his office, and he was waiting to do a shot, and he pulled out a a, a letter. And he opened the letter, and it was a letter written to his character by another character, which wasn't in the story. It just been the art department that actually put some texture in there about his character. So the actors don't have that anymore, really. I mean, the quality of, of, of the making of the sets, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to the Harry Potter Museum. I mean, even I was impressed, and I'm not impressed easily, but it's just the quality of the props that were made for Harry Potter are just mind-bogglingly good. I can't say that. So with Winters uh, doing CGI, not hard for me, because it was storyboarded. I, I storyboarded all the action, 
I don't storyboard performance. I shot this performance, but I, I know what I want to do with the camera, but I don't usually draw it. But in Band of Brothers, we storyboarded, I think we may have done all of it, but we certainly would have done a sequence like that. So you kind of switch off from, um, switch off, but it's my job to create a world in which the actors feel comfortable and, and excited and they're doing it. But, you know, the real skills down to Damien, you know, um, uh, his skill of, of being in the moment, not mine. Eaton? Yeah. Um, last week I asked Dexter um, if there's any actors he wants to work with. Um, you know, prior to that, you know, any direct, you know, director somebody wants to work with. What about you? Are there any directors out there that you admire? Yeah. And whose work you sort of take little bits from? Not really. No, I did. I did notice last night in this film that I was not very generous about the grey man. The use of drones was remarkable. I I like remote control. Always have done since I was a little boy. I had remote control aircraft, and I bought a big drone, um, a, a professional drone, a, a DP Fire Two, a couple of years ago. My son, one of my other sons, is a DP now, and he's doing big you know, Marvel stuff and, and, and big things for American TV and the streamers. And he was an operator. He started lighting. Well, he was lighting two or three years ago, but he, he's now moved completely to lighting. But he was operating then. And I, so I bought a drone, really, so I could spend a bit more time with him. So on movies where they didn't, couldn't afford a drone, I'd come along and, and crash it into trees. Anyway, so I bought this drone. So I've been, I got a proper, I did a professional, I've got a professional pilot's license. Um, and uh, I don't know if I just gave, I tried to, I, when he stopped, he started lighting. It's a quick story, but it's interesting. I, I when he started lighting and I, I wasn't using it enough and I thought it's silly, it's silly, now flog it. Well, the Inspire 2 uh, is an amazing bit of engineering, but you can't use it in feature films when you've got crew, crew crowds, because the insurance companies won't let you because they've got four engines, four propellers, and if you lose one, it will crash. And this thing weighs 10 kilos, it'll kill you. So uh, you had to fly octocopters, it's changing. Octocopters, eight, obviously eight propellers, eight motors, so you can lose one or two and it can still stay stable. So the, it's not that you can't get the actors to sign a form saying, I don't care if it falls on my head. The insurance companies won't let you. So anyway, I wasn't using it, so I thought I'd flog it and I couldn't, no one wanted to buy it really. There was too many out there because the Inspire 3 they know is coming along and for filmmaking, apart from documentaries, even though the quality of the photography is good enough, the actual thing couldn't get past the insurance company. So I, I rang up this company that I bought it from and said, why don't I, um, you know, how can I sell it? And he said, well, you can't probably. He said, why don't you give it to the Ukrainians? So I did. So, uh, well, actually, we, it's interesting. We, I, gave, I said, sure, have it. So he picked it up. The company picked it up the next day. And I got a phone call the, the next morning to say, look, we're awfully sorry, but we can't, ha we can't take it to Ukraine because the Russians are shooting the operators. Because DJI... It's hard to know what actually happened when the when aircraft when drones were flying around Heathrow a few years ago. Remember, there was a lot of problems. Yeah, DJI, DJI, who are a very very clever Chinese company, Chinese owned, Chinese design. Don't think it's American anywhere near it. Um, I mean, they promote it, but it's all done in, by the Chinese. Um, they came up with a piece of tracking software because every every DJI drone has they know the frequency. Well, frequency is two point four gigahertz, but it's all encoded. 
So they came out with a piece of uh, soft hardware, which you could, a portable version of a suitcase, about 15,000 quid, or one for aircraft, for airports, it's about 150,000 quid, it's got 20 antennas and can find, and it will track any drone. So if it's a drone flying within 50, 30 miles, it will log onto the frequency. And for when they get the frequency of the drone, they can pinpoint where the operator's standing through global positioning. And so the Ukraine, the Russians were killing the operators of the DJI drones because somehow, I don't know how, DJI, the codes for the DJI drones had got to the Russians. There was a lot of talk on the internet about how that happened and who was to blame, etc. So what they did in the end, they sold my drone because they could, they, someone wanted to buy it and they bought some drones that are not made by DJI, uh, which you couldn't track because there's no software that was tracking. But anyway, I don't know why I got onto that, but it was, I thought, interesting. Oh, is it about? Uh, directors that inspire you. Oh, yeah, fuck it. Oh, no, there's no directors you inspire. Yeah, there <laughs> I just thought I would use that as cover so I didn't have to tell you. Uh, <laughs> their names, I'm at that point now, I have to run through my children's names because I can't know, I don't know which one's which. I've got a lot of them. Um, who do I admire? Well, ones that are still living is the problem. Uh, I admire many who are, are, are dead and gone. Um, oh, let me let me narrow it down because my question is, is similar to Layton's. Which film do you wish you'd made? Oh, great question. Oh, yeah, which film? Well, I know. I thought the last film I thought was really, really well made was um, the one about um, the guy uh, who had Alzheimer's. Oh, the father with uh, Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, Hopkins. Yeah, fantastic. I thought the writing, the directing uh, and the acting was superb. My favourite movie is Great Virginia Woolf and still probably remain so. Brief Encounter, I mean, these are quite old movies. Brief Encounter is one of the great movies. If you've never seen it, do yourself a favour. It's got probably got one of the... It, it was made in the war. It's Trevor Howard and Celia Johnson. Um, an amazing script. Um, it's got... It's got the most movie... It's about a, about a, a doctor who's having an affair with a, with a middle-class woman from the suburbs, and they meet on a train station. And it's a good lesson in terms of... I'm just having this argument with my wife at the moment about a script I'm hoping to do in India, which is which she just read it last night and she was saying, I think your the comedy is a bit broad. And I said, Well, Shakespeare had the rude mechanicals, you know, they were characters in his plays that were the, the comic relief. And in Brief Encounter, you have Celia Johnson, Trevor Howard playing the most moving scenes you'll ever see on a film. And then you'll cut to um Stanley Holloway, and I can't remember the woman's name, who's, she runs the station buffet, and he's the chief, he's the porter on the station, on the station, yeah, porter. And they're, they're performing, it's, it's all, it's fast, but because they're both perfect of their kind, they sit alongside each other without any clashes. I think it's a bit like, I, I have a feeling, you haven't seen my house, but it's pretty mad. I think... I hate houses that are all one period, and I hate production designers who design a house. You know, it's meant to be a... I mean, the Romans had antiques. You know, the, the, you know medieval England was full of antiques. From the, they had Roman bits in it. So I think that if you've got <clears throat> furniture, you can have a piece of Mies van der Rohe alongside Louis Quinze's chest of drawers. And because they're both remarkable pieces of design, they won't clash. And I think that applies to filmmaking in its own way. 
I'm a bit simplistic what I'm saying. So I think you can mix up. So the directors that mix them up um, well. I just finished reading a book about Chamino. I mean, he was a complete nightmare, but he was a clever man. Clever man when he, you know, when he got it right. This is Deer Hunter. Yeah, Deer Hunter. Yeah. yeah. But the book's really good. English writer, really well researched. And it's not just really about Chamino, it's about Hollywood at the time. I knew reading it was because I knew most of the players in it, the producers and the studio bosses. Um, so it was um, an interesting example of what ourselves directors can be and what ourselves producers can be and Hollywood can be. But there you go. Anyway, so I don't know. Um, I, the directors, what well, films that I love? Well, I've told you the one that I the last remember seeing that I really loved. There'll be other ones. One of the sad things about getting to the point where you're old enough for your thumbs to wear out is. You don't remember names very well. So um, interviews can be a bit embarrassing because unless I've got a prompt sheet, I can, I have, um, I have, um, I have my wife who says, no, no, you mean, it's like when we go to parties, uh, she goes, yeah, yeah, she'll, she'll go up to people and say, sorry, I, I don't know you, what's your name? Because I can't remember the person I worked with um, five years ago. It's not, I'm not, I, well, I probably am arrogant, but it's not intentional. I'm just not great with names, John. Um, <laughs> Like, well, everyone boss them exactly the same way, boss. I'll this tell you a good story. Uh, uh, I've never told this to anyone before, but I'll tell you. Uh, and I, I tell it with warmth to Tom Hanks because I liked him and he was very generous and he's a very busy man. But when, I, when he saw the cut of, of Day of Days, he wrote me an email. And the email said, um, I just want to say I've just seen the cut of Day of Days I'm paraphrasing, it may not have been quite as complimentary as I'm saying. It's everything that that's Stephen and I wanted it to be. It fulfills our dreams. I just want to say I'd be eternally grateful to you, Jonathan. <laughs> it sort of slightly put a sting in the tail. He wrote back straight away, so I'm really sorry, and, and I laughed. And, and I'm sure, you know, and I don't hold it against him, and I hope he doesn't mind me telling the story. But... Um, uh, we've all we've all we've all sent an email on that, that that was copied had a copy in the bottom which you really didn't want the person you forwarded it onto yeah. to read yeah. don't uh, ever replace reply all just yeah, never exactly. replace reply no, no. all yeah. anyway so excuse me tom if i said something you didn't like um uh, there you go richard it's been an absolute pleasure we'll let you go so, thanks very much for the time <laughs>